few months ago now, the European Commission promised the biggest animal welfare reform I think we've seen in history, which is a ban on almost all cages and crates across the EU. And hopefully, this isn't set yet, but hopefully also on all animals sold in the EU, including raised outside of the EU. And so if enacted, that would cover over 300 million hens, rabbits, pigs and other animals. The global food system is facing unparalleled challenges and changes. So how can we reset for a better, more sustainable future? Introducing Control-Alt-Meat, the weekly podcast that explores the issues transforming the global food business. I'm your host, Katie Briefel. Come join me as I speak to the innovators and investors policymakers and product developers, the scientists and the chefs, who are all on the front line reshaping the future of our food. What are the key developments that we've seen in regards to animal welfare and its impact on ESG? In this mini episode, I'm joined by Elliot Tepperman, who's going to give me the lowdown. Elliot, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. No problem. So today we're going to do a spotlight on animal welfare. What are the biggest um, advancements and improvements and trends at the moment in that subject? Right. So I think I think the main story in animal welfare in the last 10 years is cage-free eggs. So caged hens have some of the worst lives of any farm animal, I think. Uh, and so animal advocates have been working really hard on this issue and have seen really big wins. So for those of you who don't know, in the past 10 years, over a thousand food companies have pledged to go cage-free. And that's that's across 77 countries. Um, that's some of the world's largest food producers and retailers. And to give you a sense of the scale, uh, there are some estimates that that's about over a billion hens spared from cages each year. So it's making a huge difference. Yeah. And has that been influencing government policy at all? Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting story that's been coming out of it, which is that in this case, it was actually the companies that have led first. And in the past few years, we've started to see governments following after. So I, I think the biggest story here is, I'm not sure, maybe some people are familiar, but a few months ago now, the European Commission promised the biggest animal welfare reform I think we've seen in history, which is a ban on almost all cages and crates across the EU. And hopefully, this isn't set yet, but hopefully also on all animals sold in the EU, including raised outside of the EU. And so if enacted, that would cover over 300 million hens, rabbits, pigs, and other animals. It's interesting. From what you're saying, it sounds like it's consumers who have influenced companies and therefore governments after that. Does that seem to be the trend that you're pulling together? Yeah, I think so. And I, th- I think what started that domino was the right ask. I think it was something that lived at the intersection of a really big welfare improvement for animals that wasn't too expensive and was doable for for companies. I think that was the sweet spot. And are there any other developments um, that maybe are surprising or not sort of immediately um, telling an animal welfare story, but that are are improving conditions for animals? Yeah, I I think this is definitely an important part of the story. And I think speaking to a lot of animal advocates and people working in this space, this is often less on their radar, which is that there's a lot of shared areas of of work between different movements. So one area that's been a big area of focus for the FAIR initiative has been antibiotic use and reducing antibiotic use. And what's really interesting there is that if you're not giving animals as many antibiotics, then by necessity, they are going to have better lives. They're going to have more space. 
they're going to be less sick. And so, so that's a win-win where you can then suddenly work with a lot of partners who are interested in factory farming from a human health perspective and an antimicrobial resistance perspective. Uh, you have the same with worker safety, where some of the things that you can do to leave workers safer, like slowing down the line speeds at slaughterhouses, means there's less likely to be an injury. But that also just means that um, there's this strategic story here, which is that less animals are going to be running through those systems, which is going to raise the price of meat slightly, which means slightly few animals, fewer animals might be raised um, because it's slightly more expensive. I will say, though, actually, I think that the sword cuts both ways on this issue, which is that sometimes different issues can be at odds. So, for example, um, some of the ways to lower your carbon footprint could be going from cows to chickens. But one cow produces about 100 times as much meat as one chicken. So if you go from cows to chickens, you're actually raising a lot more chickens. And they also tend to have worse lives. So it, it isn't always clear. Sometimes there are these uh, really hard dilemmas in this space as well. It's a bit of a balancing act. Yeah. So Elliot, how incompatible is business profit with driving up these animal welfare causes? So this is actually an interesting one. When I Before joining FAIR, I thought, well, generally, better welfare is, is more costly, so it's going to run counter to profit. But exploring the ESG risks in animal welfare at FAIR, um, I, I really actually changed my mind the more I, the more I looked at it. So say, for example, I am, it's 2015 and I'm a farmer raising hens for eggs and I'm looking to grow my flock and I'm figuring out what kind of flock do I want to, do I want to invest in? And I decide to go for caged hens. Um, five years in, suddenly I noticed that almost all the companies that I sell to have made cage-free commitments and they're looking for producers who can, who can fill those orders. Suddenly I'm behind the curve and my investment no longer looks like uh, very profitable because it's going to take me about 10 years to recoup those losses. Um, whereas if I made a cage-free investment at that time, that would be in demand and there would be a lot of companies looking to buy those. So I think it's the producers who are staying ahead of, you know, a few years ahead of what's about to happen uh, in the policy space and in the consumer space that really stand to benefit from those changes. It's interesting because I feel like the one of the silver linings of the COVID-19 pandemic is people are looking at how we can um, basically revolutionize how we're growing meat and selling meat as well as, you know, in the um, wet markets as well. So staying ahead of those curves, I think is really important. Sure. And I imagine you're probably having conversations or on this podcast with people talking about alternative proteins, where I think that's really shone, shone a spotlight on um, as a way to mitigate those risks. Absolutely. And as we've talked about with some of our guests about how we can scale that industry up and the, the faster that we can, the more profit can be um, can be developed from that. So yeah, it's definitely something that we're looking at. So Elliot, if people want to find out more about this topic, where would you recommend they go? The first place I'd recommend is Lewis Bollard's newsletter. Uh, Lewis works at Open Philanthropy, which is a foundation and does a huge amount of work in the farm animal welfare space. And I think Lewis Bullard's blog has a lot of really interesting insights and summarizes some of the key changes in the movement over time. If you Google Open Philanthropy and then Lewis Bullard's blog, that'll be one place to find it. I think otherwise, there's another good uh, newsletter by Jamie Harris at Sentience Institute called But Can They Suffer? And so you'll be able to Google that. Otherwise, I think Lewis's Twitter is also another great place where he's constantly tweeting about 
what the latest wins and challenges are in the farm animal movement. So I would also check that out. So what's next in animal welfare looking ahead? Yeah, I would say the next thing to watch, which maybe doesn't feel like we're there yet, but I think it would be surprising how quickly this ramps up, is fish welfare. Again, a decade ago, no one was talking about fish welfare, even for advocates. Uh, The trillion or so fish killed for food really just wasn't on anyone's radar. But since then, we're starting to see a real groundswell of grassroots activism, of undercover investigations. And we're at the stage where we're starting to see mainstream coverage of the issue. So Washington Post, Guardian, NPR are, are talking about fish welfare. And we're just at the point where some of the leading companies are starting to make a transition. So right now, I think Tesco and Sainsbury's have made fish welfare commitments. And so we're at the, that beginning that we, where we were 10 years ago with chicken welfare. And so I think this is going to be the one to watch that companies, countries rather, are going to start making commitments in the coming years. Um, and again, the, the producers, the huge producers that are raising uh, hundreds of millions and, and billions of fish for food, uh, the ones that are leading on welfare are going to stand to benefit from that change. Absolutely. We have a um, scientist on this podcast, Diana Reese, who's um, dedicated a lot of her work towards um, stopping inhumane fishing practices. So it's definitely something that we can see gathering pace. Great, really insightful conversation. Thank you, Elliot. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Control Alt Meat. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on social media to help us reach more listeners like you. You can also visit controlaltmeat.com to learn more.